This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 596 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Dustin Osborne. Now, Dustin is a veteran Australian police officer and also a member of their active armed offender team. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into law enforcement, gun and knife crime in Australia, the ripple effect of the pandemic, tactical first aid, and so much more. Before we get to this amazing conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 600 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dustin Osborne. Enjoy. Well, Dustin, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thanks very much, James. It's um, awesome to have the opportunity. So you are not in the US, so we managed to navigate the uh, rather challenging time zones between uh, continents. So for everyone listening, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? I am in uh, normally quite sunny Brisbane, but it's, um, it's not today in Queensland, Australia. Beautiful. Well, I'd love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. So overall, I've traveled nowhere. Um, I was born in Brisbane, still live in Brisbane. Um, My parents have uh, sort of a dad's pretty eclectic with what he does. He's started a life off as a golf professional. Um, So did a bit of touring, mainly a... uh, golf course pro so a lot of teaching and things like that he later moved into uh, doing photography uh, as his sort of main career Uh, mum was very much that standard role of um, stay-at-home mum for a long time but then she moved out into working with dad uh, and running a pretty successful um, wedding business as doing floristry and cake decorating so a uh, bit of a different background for what I've ended up doing myself. Uh, I've got one brother who's also in the police as well. So um, all in all, from what mum and dad did, I've definitely sort of taken a bit of a strange direction because we don't have any real uh, law enforcement or really any military experience in our families. So with that, you've got, you know, obviously mum was, was uh, taking care of you guys when you were little. But it sounds like your dad took the entrepreneurial path in the golf world and then obviously in the photography world. What was it about his mindset that was different than a majority of people that ultimately go work for a company and, you know, spend their time there? Yeah, yeah, I think it comes from the generation of um, 
you either work for someone and you, you really grind away and you, you do something for someone else or you do it for yourself. And that's the, the way um, our family's always really sort of taken things. It's, you know, you run your own business, you run your own show. So that's been one of those things that, I guess is uh, has swung off and and sort of influenced myself quite quite a bit um, with my own life is you know I could you know, sit around and sort of follow leads or I could take my own path and use the directions that I've seen growing up and and, and chase those. There's not much point you know just following everyone else's ball when you can have your own. Absolutely. Now with Brisbane. Um I was spent some time in Australia. I worked in Sydney and Manly Bay for a little bit when I was traveling. And uh, I want to say we spent Christmas Eve in Surface Paradise. Is that the Brisbane area? Have I got that right? Yeah, that's just down south in the Gold Coast. So okay. that's probably about a 50-hour drive just down there. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, because we uh, I think a lot of people don't realize you guys, your summer is our winter and vice versa. So, yeah, we were on Christmas Eve taking a surfing lesson. Very uh very cool experience, but not very um, uh, festive when it comes to how we normally perceive winter. Yeah, definitely. It's the uh, complete flip side of it. Like you said, you didn't have any first responders or military in your family. So when you were a school age, what were you dreaming of becoming? Going through high school, it was sort of um, my main influence was really just staring out of windows and looking at what's going on around me instead of paying attention in class. So. Um, when we got to the level of high school where we started going out and doing work experience, I actually jumped on and um, went and worked with the Queensland Fire Department and that really piqued my interest. So from about year 11, uh, which is the second last year in high school for us in Australia, that was um, the direction I wanted to take was to, to join the fire department and to chase that. Um, the big issue there was Queensland Fire and Rescue were doing a huge recruitment drive uh, not that long after I left school. So um, any application that went in, there was about a five-year backlog. So it sort of put me in a position where I was sitting and waiting and looking at other options then come up. Now, what age do you graduate school in Australia? Uh, normally, you graduate around 18 years old. Um, but for myself, I was uh, I was born in December, and um, in our sort of uh, areas, you could actually start school a year early. So I ended up finishing year twelve when I was sixteen. So I didn't have much um, sort of career opportunity at that stage because you still got two years to to live and grow up before you can really start pushing through into a decent workforce. Now, you weren't really uh, very inspired by academia by the sounds of it. So, you know, was there an <laughs> element of mentorship and that kind of trade school um, perspective that did ignite something inside you? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and that was realistically it. I just hated school. Um, you know, being involved in the physical elements of school, like you know, doing manual arts, um, you know, sports and things like that. <laughs> I actually love doing that. But as far as sitting there and just, you know, kicking through some books, it was just absolutely destroyed me. So um, when I left school, the, the first job I actually had as a 16-year-old, and I worked in the industry until I was about uh, nearly 10 years, which actually is a, uh, as a push bike mechanic. 
yeah, so I worked in the, in the bicycle industry for nearly 10 years and um, that was just before it actually was made an official trade as well. So there's a huge amount to learn in that with the, um, you know, the sales side of it, but also the, the mechanics and the engineering of it as well. I mean, are you working in like higher performance bikes or was it the regular bike shop? Yeah, I, initially I started off in sort of a mid-level bike shop um, and then I sort of flicked around for a little bit but ended up working in a real top-end store where, you know, we were selling, you know, push bikes worth, you know, fifteen to $20,000 quite regularly. So it was a, definitely a, uh, a big eye-opener going from, you know, shop to shop. But it was, yeah, it was, I really enjoyed it, so... Now, a question for you. When when I look at mountain bikes now, because I'm wanting to get one. My, my family got me one a while ago, and it was from just, you know, like a Walmart. Um, and the frame was a little bit too small. And so, I, you know, ultimately, I'm going to sell it and upgrade to to a better one. But when I grew up, there were none of the shocks or that kind of thing. And I kind of like that if I'm not doing extreme downhill racing. So for someone entry-level what should they be looking for for a, a standard bike? Because, I mean, you have the absolute cheapo bikes that are out there in a lot of the stores, and then you have, as you said, the high-level graphite, crazy expensive ones. Yeah, look, I'm not too sure anymore. I've been out of the industry for nearly 20-something years. So um, I guess the big thing is is just pick your budget and, and work working towards that. So I think those the, the mid-level bikes have always been pretty much the same year. Um, look at Chinese manufactured frames. They're mostly going to be alloy, and then it's just a matter of seeing what um, you know decent spec componentry you can get on there. Brilliant. Okay, that was just a question for my my curiosity. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, then before we kind of get into the law enforcement side again, while you were at school age, you mentioned about sports. What sports were you playing? Um. <clears throat> Through like the official sort of sports that I used to play was um, soccer and cricket. So that's the the two sort of major ones through uh, your high school grades in in uh, in Australia. And then um, on the weekends, I was basically riding BMX freestyle. So that was the ambition anyway. I don't know if I did it very well, but is that what took you into the bike world originally? But yeah, it was. Yeah, getting into um into BMX riding. Yeah. I think that's also what got me into first aid as well. So I spent more time on the ground than I did on the bike. So learn how to patch myself up pretty quickly. <laughs> All right. So then you were trying to get into the fireside. They ended up being completely saturated with candidates. You worked 10 years in the bike industry. So what inspired you to pursue law enforcement and walk me through your, you know, your journey through that door? Um, so... During that period, I was um, working in the bike industry. My brother actually joined the police. So having that sort of um, that, that close-knit relationship where I was looking at what he was doing, the journey he was sort of going through um, in relation to the lead-up education that was required um, and then also going through the academy. And that, that was something that, I don't know, kind of, appealed to me on that more um, I sort of like the military aspect of it um, whereas I hated school but this sounded a lot better because it was more functional and actually directed towards something so you know hearing the stories coming in from him about what they're doing at the academy the directions they're taking 
that really appealed to me um, as something that would be cool to do if the fireys didn't turn out to be an actual option. Um, and then from that part of every year, I was spending a good couple of hundred to maybe a thousand dollars keeping up my first aid qualifications that were prerequisites for joining the fire department. And it was sort of at that point where I thought, well, you know what, I could have a run at maybe joining the police um, and and get the job. And if it's not good, I can always switch over to the the fire department later on. So that was pretty much the catalyst was, you know, hearing some cool stories and um, wanting to save a bit of money on keeping myself qualified to actually join the fires that uh, ultimately never come about. Yeah, I think many policemen do carry failed dreams of becoming a firefighter. That's the trauma they're going to have to deal with the rest of their lives. Look, we just want to be loved. Um, so talk to me then, you, you were an athlete, you were playing cricket, which often doesn't foster a high level of athleticism, but certainly football does, soccer. So how did your fitness uh, carry over into the physical requirements for law enforcement in Australia? Um, well, apart from doing soccer and cricket, one of the main things I was doing was um, I used to compete in sprinting. So. I used to do quite a lot of running. I used to train three times a week for sprinting as well. So um, I had that pretty decent base level of cardio uh, and I was always reasonably um, – I used to do reasonably well at uh, swimming uh, competition as well. So that was never an issue for me. So my base level of fitness was um, probably taking myself from more of a um, – I don't even know what you would call it. I just basically had to put a bit of bulk on because I was racing mountain bikes at that stage. So, you know, I was I was out riding on the weekends doing 140k rides, you know, without any sort of issues. But I was only weighing probably 75 kilos, and you know, I was built like a prey mantis. So, the big thing for me was to actually start eating properly and, and put a bit of bulk on, so um, I could actually make it through the academy without being snapped in half. Well, it sounds a lot like my journey into the fire academy. So <laughs> how did you, <laughs> how did you, how were you able to change your training and nutrition so you were able to bulk up a little bit and have some, some size to be able to assist you with some of the, you know, requirements that law enforcement have? Um, mainly the, the big thing for me was um, just the real simple stuff. Just, changing the sort of the way I ate a little bit, um, <clears throat> focusing diet more towards, um, I guess, protein bases instead of going for, you know, evenly balanced meals, I guess is probably the way to say it. Uh, the other thing is, well, I was working in a bike shop, so you, you don't exactly have a, a really healthy, clean diet. It's what the local bakery's got to offer and that's about it. So, um starting the gym, just doing weights-based programs um, and going through that phase. But the, the big thing for me was I wasn't overly concerned with um, how strong I was and I never set actual strength target goals or things like that, but I just wanted to just to bulk up that little bit. I've been doing at that stage um, <clears throat> martial arts for about eight years as well, so I had a bit of background in um, 
handling myself in that regards. Obviously, you know, not on the street, but in a um, you know closed forum gym. But um, the big thing for me was just to get in the academy, work out what I needed, and then more target it from having some experience on the road. Now, what martial arts were you doing? I was doing some basically like a mixed Japanese one um, that was done through a local gym um, from an old uh, ninjutsu instructor. Oh, really? Yeah. So it was uh, a little bit left field, but it was it was very cool, and it was more sort of uh, based on uh, nothing to do with real traditional elements like a lot of the karates and taekwondo's are. It's more of the fact of this is what we used to do and this is what you know the old scrolls say you do but it's not going to help you in a street fight so if you we adapt those methods to this this is where you're going to come out on on top so uh working with um the sensei wayne roy for for about eight years it was yeah it was excellent and it was sort of one of those things that um is absolutely soul destroying when you first walk in the door of them because you work out you can't do anything you originally thought you could. But that uh, ego check is, I guess, probably one of the best things you can ever have. And um, it sort of rebuilds you as a, uh, a little bit more measured person, I think, after you get owned week after week for months on end. Absolutely. Yeah, Jiu-Jitsu does that for me. Every, everything does that for me, actually. Everyone's better than me. Yep. <laughs> so. yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. So what about the kind of defensive tactics element, the hands-on? Um, what did that look like when you entered law enforcement and how did it compare to what you'd been learning in the martial arts classes? Yeah, that's a, I, I guess what you're looking at is for the martial arts that I've been doing, it's sort of um, – I was lucky in the sense that the way Wayne Roy would always teach his classes were – if you do something on the road, that's what happens on the road, but it doesn't end on the road anymore. This isn't ancient Japan or whatever else that what you do on the road needs to be legally defensible. And if you are going to probably go to court for this and you are probably going to be arrested for it. So it's not a matter of getting on top, grounding and pounding and, and just, you know, going to war on these people. It's a matter of being measured, being responsible and knowing how to actually um, look after yourself post-incident with um, the legal side of things as well. So that, I guess, not even subconsciously, that consciously set me up to work well at the academy of, you know, deploying, you know, measured, justifiable, proportionate levels of, I guess, violence to um, to render, um, you know, conflict over so once i got into the academy i never really struggled with um what i know a lot of other guys did who had good quality martial arts backgrounds or security or even military backgrounds it's like you can only do what you're supposed to do to stop the person doing what they're doing before you can you know call it a day it's not about total world domination so um that transition into, from my martial arts background anyway, into the world of law enforcement was actually really smooth. I actually really appreciated the um, the knowledge that I had and the teachings definitely that uh, Wayne passed on to me. 
and even still does because we still I'm still in contact with him now, and that was um, 22 years on so since I started. Oh, that's a really important point as well. I had a, a few guests and probably some of the most dangerous people I know who are high level, you know, combatants with weapons, but also with jujitsu or, you know, whatever element that they train in. It's the same resounding thing. It's like, are you prepared to die when you initiate this, this fight? And you ask some of these people, if you can run, run. These people don't need to run, but they're going to run because now you've avoided yeah. any sort of issue. And I had that even growing up, like watching fights and, even if you had won a fight, you know damn well that, you know, the next Saturday or Sunday, five of them are going to show up and they're going to come kick your ass. And eventually someone's going to get stabbed or bottled or, you know, someone's going to crack their head on the curb as they get knocked out and, you know, someone's going to jail. Yeah. For what? You know, is what you were about arguing about, especially these school fights that you see, this girl or, you know, whatever, was it worth dying for or going to prison for? And if you can kind of set that in your mind, you know, when you're angry in traffic or whatever it is, like, is this person, yes, they're an asshole and yes, they cut me up and yes, they flick me off, but is it worth dying or going to prison for? It really does kind of reframe your anger and your actions. Yeah, that's that's the big thing. And I think a lot of the people that do get caught up in that moment is, you know, it's, it really is ego and it's not a, a matter of looking at the, the longer term aspect of it. It's just I need to act in this moment. I need to make this right for myself and not looking at that bigger picture of, you know, the way Wayne Roy always used to sort of illustrate it was what's happening to you right then and there at that time, that's the first wave. and You've got to get through that first wave, but then you're going to have the second wave, which is going to be, law enforcement, court, judicial processes and everything else. And then you're going to have third, fourth, fifth waves of basically, you know, depending on what you've done, you potentially might be living with that for the rest of your life. So um, there's always those, um, you know, really good teachings that I took away from it to sort of look at overall incident management and management of yourself as well to, to make better decisions at the time. Well, I know in your the area that you served when when you kind of gave me some of the overview of of your kind of career path, um, you talk about very affluent areas and then also very dangerous areas and, and gangs. And when I think of Australia, when you think of one of the the main crime um, elements that springs to mind is the biker gangs. So when then when you talk about you know what we've just been discussing you talk about retaliation again there's no better example than than gangs whether it's biker gangs or you know whatever it is so talk to me about them through law enforcement eyes. what what do you see in you know 2022 when it comes to those is it still as bad as it was are they you know just doing nothing but giving out turkeys on thanksgiving now or is there a kind of middle ground um i think that there's been a big shift overall in um, in gang behaviour um, since I've been in. I've, I've been in the police now nearly just on 14 years um, and by no means is that like a long time, but I think it's enough to sort of see shifts in, in criminal behaviour. And when I first got in, the, the bikey gangs that were established within our areas, they were... Um, they're heavily controlled. So the, the top tier, the president, uh, you know, he looks after everything and the your patched members, they tend to do 
everything that that president tells them to do um, and they function within his rules and guidelines. The ones that we always used to have to really watch out for were the prospective members, the ones that are trying to make a mark, get themselves seen, get themselves recognised to then be, um, you know, bought in and actually patched members. So we would go to pubs or clubs where they had established themselves for the night and you wouldn't ever have to worry about the actual members. You're always worrying about where the associates are, where those ones that are trying to get themselves, you know, earn their hooks type of thing. Um, generally, they're pretty civil when you, you talk to them in, in larger groups because they just don't want heat. They don't want police being there. They don't want to go through those conflicts. They don't. They just want to go and do their business, which is kind of what I think they're about from my very, I guess, shallow aspect of knowledge of them is um, they're, they're business people, really. Like, sure, it's criminal, but at the end of the day, they're making deals to do what they need to do. Um, and they try and run themselves as a business. So you, you flip that over, then you look at what we're currently dealing with now, which is really bad youth crime. And, and that's the ones that are making it really hard and really, really dangerous for us because I guess from that overarching sort of view of it, they don't have any direction. They're not trying to, you know, run a drug empire. They're just out killing 10 hours of the night. So they're stealing cars. They're not actually going anywhere. They just want to drive around fast. They're having beefs with each other and they're just stabbing each other in large groups in the middle of the city. And if people get caught up in that, they get caught up in it. So the, um, the different gangs that we have to deal with we find that the biggest dangers comes from the, the ones that just don't have direction, which is at this point on the juveniles. So it's interesting because we're seeing a lot of knife crime in the UK too, the same kind of thing probably. Um, what do you think is at the nucleus of this wave, this wave of youth crime that we're seeing now? What's the kind of, you know, the common denominator, the cause that's initiated that? I really don't know. Um, I guess, and that's the, the sort of the honest truth about it is I, I really can't pinpoint my finger on it too much because when we go and look at the demographics of the actual individual gangs, you're looking at, um, you know, these gangs being made up not by one race, not by one ethnicity or not by one age group. Now, they're actually really quite diverse. Um, if anything, you're sort of finding that it's because this group comes from this suburb or this region within Brisbane. And I guess that's probably what we're more looking at, if anything. Um, as for why and what they're trying to do and what they're trying to achieve, I don't know. It's kind of just real like Lord of the Flies type of stuff. It's just a heap of kids that have got no real direction, no real... Um, you know, guardianship, um, and probably, if anything, all they're doing is just trying to establish their own community because they don't have anything at home. They don't have anywhere to go. So they just meet up and where they are is where they are. and um, They live and breathe by going 
almost back to primitive prehistoric sort of measures. They just rob, cheat, buy, steal so they can get the money to go and buy food, steal food, alcohol, whatever they need. So, yeah, it's a... It's an extremely complex issue because I just don't know if anyone really knows what's going on. So one thing that I've seen is this impact of multi-generational trauma. So one one area I talk about a lot and I'd love to get the Australian perspective is the uh, prohibition of drugs, taking addiction, making it illegal, throwing addicts into prison, You know, making people who are addicts buy from the underworld, empowering them, allowing them to have gangs, allowing them to murder each other, etc., etc. Now fast forward a generation or two, and now you've got children growing up in broken homes. So they don't have guardianship. Their role models in the community are thugs and dealers and, you know, pimps and some of these other areas. And even though some get out and do incredibly well, some don't. And then you find that. So when, when you look maybe, you know, prior to the beginning of your career, was there you know, an element of addiction and, and was, uh, was drug a current, were drugs a currency in some of these neighborhoods that you're struggling with now? To be honest, I just absolutely don't know, and it, it probably sounds extremely privileged, but uh, and, and because it is. But um, you know, mum and dad put themselves through massive struggle uh, financially, and, and basically left themselves with nothing. So my brother and I had you know decent quality private education. So um, you know, the school that we went to, yeah, there was some real low-level drug activity in those with, like, marijuana and stuff like that. But we never had, um, you know, overt large-scale violence. You know, there was always fights in the schoolyard and, you know, I got into a couple of those as well. But at the end of the day, it's like nothing that I was ever subjected to was, you know, definitely haven't started a rap career about being in the ghetto from it. Um, I've had a very, very lucky life in that aspect and I've never really even been um, exposed to it until I joined the police. So, but that's what I mean. So that was your upbringing. These kids that you're seeing with the violence now, when you visit the parents or parents or whatever it is, are you seeing, are are they growing up in broken homes? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. We, um, one of the things that sort of, I guess, uh, insulates myself from it is, because I work in, in a central city division, um, we're not really <laughs> – these kids are coming in from the suburbs into the, the, the city. So, you know, some of these kids are travelling, you know, an hour plus to get here to, to meet up and join into these groups. So they're actually putting in quite a lot of effort to get here. Um, when we take them back, though, you're generally going into normally one-parent uh, houses – um, you know, it's a really low socioeconomic areas. The housing is normally provided by the government. Uh, there's really not much there. Uh, you look at the parents themselves and there's generally large amounts of empty alcohol bottles in the house. They're smokers. They're generally unfit, unhealthy um, physical people as well. So it's not like you're taking them back home to a really well-to-do property where the kids sort of gone off the rails as a result of their own mechanisms as opposed to, you know, I think it comes down to the fact of you look at that nature-nurture component um, and 
I think the nature component is very, very rare, whereas you look at the nurture component and the, uh, the kids you see out there, when you take them home, they're replicating very much what their, um, their living standards are. Yeah, and I, I mean, I hear that from all over the world, and that's why it's so you know interesting to hear different countries report the same thing because when we want to reverse engineer, we have to look at the nucleus and it, whatever we're cr- doing that creates broken homes, whether it's you know father or mother leaving, whether they're addicts and they they overdose, whether they end up in prison, we end up murdered, um, you know, you're you're passing that trauma to the next generation, and then we're all like holding our hands in the you know, head in our hands, going, oh, I don't know what's going on. Yes, you do. We just need to go much further back than, for example, the war on drugs, because that's, you know, that's that's like holding a bucket under an arterial bleed and making sure that you catch all the blood. You're not fixing the problem at all. Yeah, exactly right. It does nothing at all. It's like, yeah, look, look what we've got and look what we've lost, but doesn't do anything for the actual patient. Yeah. Now, with your lens, um, there's a there's a pretty significant opiate crisis we have here. Fentanyl is ravaging. Um, communities at the moment what are you seeing in australia in your area yeah we're on the flip side of that um when i very first started in the police opiate well opiates were pretty popular um not so much of the raw heroin product but a lot of um sort of pharmaceutical byproducts so um you know your suboxone methadone those type of um, opiate derivatives were heavily abused because in Australia and in Queensland especially, if you're listed um, and, and sought help for an opiate-based addiction, you could go on the subutamol or suboxone methadone um, programs. So and the purpose of that was, well, let's give you a somewhat hopefully less addictive pharmaceutical product to get you off that and to stop using dirty needles, uh, turning up in the in bad places. You had to report to a pharmacist, they would prescribe it to you, you had to take it on the premises and then you were good to go. So what that did was that sort of took away that element but then it just led the drug craze now to what we have, which is um, basically methamphetamines uh, and ice speed use. So that's probably our big issue at the moment. Um, We don't really see huge amounts of issues with cocaine. Um, We find, you know, you walk around in the party precincts and into the nightclubs and things like that and you you find a lot of well-to-do people with cocaine. but it's definitely not something you see being abused on the streets by, you know, people who are homeless or whatever else. It's generally the methamphetamine users that really do that. Yeah, see, it's interesting. I mean, there's, there's all these different, you know, areas and the common denominator is still mental health. You know what I mean? I think that's the problem is absolutely taking people from heroin to a prescribed medical, you know, medical grade opiate is better. You know, you're probably going to minimize the overdoses. You're certainly going to minimize HIV transfer and some of these other bloodborne pathogens. But if you haven't addressed the mental health element that caused them to become an addict in the first place, you're just trading drugs and you really haven't. Again, you're holding, you're holding the bucket for the arterial bleed. Yeah, exactly right. And what we see now is um, 
people are legally buying um, suboxone or, or methadone um, because the people, the, the, these chemists don't open on the weekends. So when they go on Friday, they get their Saturday, Sunday doses as well. <coughs> and they, most of these people will prefer the, the actual product. So they'll go and actually buy heroin and do that by selling their pharmaceutical product. So they almost, they, they turn their government rebate into their own trade to get what they actually want. It's not doing that, um, what it's supposed to do. And even when you talk to the actual um, people themselves, they'll tell you that, you know, methadone is almost more, or if not more addictive than heroin. It's just made in a, in a proper facility instead of someone's garden shed. So, um, yeah, there's, there's not, they're not really, I don't think changing a huge amount. The people still have, they might not have the, um, you know, the infection rates and the bloodborne diseases as they used to, but they're, they're still sick. They're still struggling. They still don't have any money. They still can't support themselves because they're just abusing a pharmaceutical-grade drug instead of, a, you know, the old garden shed-produced version. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've seen with a lot of the piecemeal. When I, when I talk about the prohibition of drugs being removed, and again, prohibition of addiction, not, not selling, not smuggling, yeah, you know, people go, oh yeah, but yeah, you know, but they tried that in Seattle, and you know they just switched to this. I'm like, no, 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 you're missing the point. Like all of them, you know, and it's not that you stock them on shelves in the supermarket. None of them are available to to purchase unless we're talking about medical grade marijuana. But you are filtered through, you know, mental health counseling and addiction counseling, but also brought into a medical facility to get whatever it is, and hopefully wean off that. But yeah, if you take away just one thing, of course they're going to do, you know, they're going to go to something else. I think in uh, Mexico, if I'm not mistaken, it was opiates and then they clamped down or, or maybe it was even marijuana. So then when they legalized it, they shifted to, I think it was opiates, you know. So of course, if you just, if you just half ass it, you're going to get this kind of the cup game, you know, which, which, which cup has the ball underneath. But if you take all the cups away, now you've cut the head off the snake, but you know, it's a, it's a very, bold measure even though really it's just going back to what the entire world did prior to the 1930s yeah yeah and it's at the end of the day you've got the same problem which is which is the people with the issues that are still not being fixed or treated exactly now speaking of issues just want to kind of slide this in before we get into the uh arm threat team and you know the tactical first aid when you know when we watch the tv which you know a lot of times doesn't mean that we're getting the the real information it would appear that australia in certain areas at least has been through some pretty strong-armed government overreach when it comes to the covid and the messengers are obviously law enforcement they're the ones sent out to go and enforce these without loading the question at all what has your been ex- what has your experience been of this last couple of years um <laughs> the last two years have been uh, in frontline policing absolutely hectic. So um, the issues that, and, and I'm, I'm speaking from more of an Australian point of view instead of for my own service, but the the need for quarantine um, oversight for police to run security measures has caused a, a massive strip down of 
uh, regular services to get police at the forefront of, you know, quarantine border checkpoints and things like that. So for us who are still men in the front line, our resources have gone right down, but our job increases have gone right up. Um, I've seen a lot of sad stuff that has just occurred through COVID and, you know, people exploiting the, um, and I guess it's common in human nature in sort of some areas to do this, but we've had mandates in our state for needing to wear uh, face masks and check in if you go to any sort of restaurant or cafe. And there's been a lot of recorded instances where other cafe owners who are in direct competition and not doing so well will call the police and say, they're not doing this, they're not doing that. So we go down and start putting, you know, uh, questions to the, the store owners about what's going on and it's just a completely vexatious complaint, um, you know, trying to get a bit of... Um, I don't even know what you would call it. It's sort of trying to get police in there to obviously, you know, hassle some customers out and hopefully they come up to their shop. So um, with that, we, we just look at a huge burden with more jobs going, um, a lot of jobs that don't even need to, to come up because people are, are scared, they're misinformed, um, they're doing it out of spite. So... We, we've had a lot of a lot of work going on. It's been a pretty exhausting couple of years, and you know, personally, I've found um, that it, it, it's had an effect on my own job satisfaction in the sense of we're, we're running around chasing this, um, you know, becoming basically parents and getting people just to adult, um, where we're not attending to the jobs that we should be anymore. And it's kind of, uh, it's a bit soul-destroying in the sense that you know what you should be doing and what you could be doing, but you're sort of left just keeping people in check for things that they should just be able to do for themselves, really. Yeah. Well, I mean, my perspective has you know, always been through this last two years. Ultimately, if we focus on wellness, if that was the actual main conversation and we protect the the vulnerable, that's the middle ground. That's the common sense ground. You know, if you, vaccines definitely would you know have a place, especially when you're vulnerable. If it minimum, if it will bring down the the severity of an infection, beautiful. You know what I mean? But these mandates, these these you can't leave your front porch. Some of these you know worst case videos, I'm sure, are the ones that, that perforate the media. Um, it breaks my heart for the people that are being locked away and it also breaks my heart for you and your colleagues having to to be you know the enforcers so what has that done for the relationship between the community and policing when as we've seen here in america when that relationship is fractured that in itself creates even more problems yeah i definitely think that it's it's caused uh, like you just said it's caused a big fracture um, now, with the relationships with, um, I guess, the public and police is the people who are for COVID vaccines, mandates, lockdowns, who are, you know, are following, I guess, that mainstream line, they're very police supportive because um, they want things to go this, the way it is they're happy to wear masks, they're happy to get 
double, triple, quad vax or whatever you need to do. Um, and they're, they're fully uh, supportive of that. So when we're out there doing our jobs and we're um, sort of maybe working on an operation about people wearing masks in public, well, they fully support that. The flip side to that is the people who don't support it <clears throat> and the people who don't want to wear masks and the people who don't want to get vaccinated, the relationship between them and the police is that's where it's become very difficult because in, in some regards, I guess some of these mandates, you know, they sort of tiptoe around, you know, the human rights and human movement. So, you know, you have to stay in your house unless you are doing these key elements and it takes away people's freedom to do things that they would normally want to do. Um, and then when we become the ones that need to enforce those rules and government mandates, then it doesn't matter how caring you are, how compassionate you are, how you communicate the detail or the rules to that person. It's just a straight-out no from them. And any resistance to what they want is met with even more resistance. So it's um it's definitely split and i think it's called it's going to cause a very long term divide between the uh the against parties and police now as as i said it appears very aggressive you know and i've got i've got you know obviously a lot of friends in australia that i used to work with in the stunt industry um so i got to see some you know real first hand accounts and you know some were better than others depending on where in australia they lived but um, what I haven't seen in America is the same aggression applied to the wellness element. You know, as I mean, the biggest freaking irony was that all the gyms and beaches and parks were closed, but you could get fast food delivered to your house along with alcohol. So yeah. how strong has been the wellness message, improving the whole country's health? Has that been in the conversation or has it been like America where it's basically suppressed? Um, I think the, the wellness conversations that we've been having here is everything that the government has done, they've very much tried to bring it back to health and well-being. So um, <clears throat> each state of Australia it has obviously taken slightly different measures. They've, some have taken really extreme measures compared to others. Uh, and I think the public is reactive to those. Um, if you look at our Victoria uh, and the models that they bought in, they were quite loose at the start, but now they've really strict, like gone very strict on it. Um, and now they're having huge protests about that. Um, Western Australia was um, very quick to block everyone else out. So if you weren't from Western Australia and you weren't a resident, well, you're just not coming in. And if you're a resident... If you go out, that's fine, but you're not coming back. So they had their issues with that. In Queensland, where I'm from, um, the sort of narrative around it was very much, we're locking you down, we're going to do it early so we can do it shorter. We're going to bring in mask mandates. Yes, it's going to be an inconvenience, but we're doing it now so we don't have a huge outbreak. And the big, um, I guess, buzzword that they were dropping in Queensland was to flatten the curve. And I've never heard anyone was, say that. 
Yeah, so I'm joking. <laughs> two weeks to flatten the curve that ended up to two years. <laughs> yeah, exactly it. So yeah, it was just we we got to flatten the curve. We got to we've got to really stop that um, you know that spike and our hospitals and our health departments being inundated. You know, we know we're going to get it, but we've got to kind of flatten the curve. So everything that we did in in, well, not everything, but a vast majority of things that we did in Queensland come back to that flattening the curve. Um, the thing is, though, we were told early that we're going to flatten the curve, we're going to hit it early, we're going to take it early, but here we are two years on and now people are, they've just had enough. So it's, um, it's, getting, it's getting pretty harsh. Um, we've got a lot of strange... Um, mandates coming in that unless you're double vaccinated you can't go and eat in a restaurant so it, it's getting to the point now that if you want to go to certain gyms um you don't have to be vaccinated but then other gyms make it that you have to be double vaccinated to use their gym so um some mandates have been bought in um for everyone some have been put on to actual businesses to make it up to their own sort of decision if they do it. But there is definitely a, a divide between the, um, you know, why should I get vaccinated to I just don't want to, but now I can't go out and have, you know, dinner with my family at a restaurant anymore. So it's sort of, well, do you get vaccinated because you want to eat out or what do you do? It's kind of, I don't know. There's sort of a uh, a little bit of a element there of well we'll get you to get vaccinated one way or another. Yeah, well, and I'm seeing that too. And like I said, what what's such a hypocrisy in the U.S. is there's no no discussion of of the obesity epidemic, of the opiate crisis, of all these things that we're seeing that are killing you know millions of Americans. That wasn't good enough for them. But you get vaccinated and wear masks, and that's the golden ticket. And obviously, the answer is both. The middle ground is, you know, you use those where they're applicable and you make everyone healthier. But what really scares me is if you look at, for example, our professions, when you are under very poor leadership and there's a lot of micromanaging, so therefore we lose autonomy, there's definitely the organizational stress element that causes mental ill health. Well, there's no better example of an entire community or even nation losing autonomy as this last two years. So we are hands down going to see a mental health crisis ripple effect as we come out of this last two years. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I agree with your last point as well because <coughs> Queensland's very um, – our, our government likes to release almost daily uh, updates on the COVID. So how many positive cases there are, the, the current death rate and things like that. And one of the, the key themes that keeps coming out is, you know, today we had nine deaths or eight deaths or whatever it was. That's not actually true for today. But um, when they release that data, they say, so we had this many deaths, the people were uh, double vaccinated, but they all had underlying health issues. And you're like, well, you're starting to see some common trends here and common trends here in the, in the fact of most people who are dying have got underlying health issues and a lot of those are autoimmune deficiencies and diseases and a lot of those I would 
not a doctor, I don't know, but I'd suggest that that could be preventable as in, you know, type 2 diabetes via, you know, obesity inducement. Um, and along with that, the respiratory issues that can come with that as well. So it's like, well, what are the common links here and the common threads to COVID-related deaths? Are they just COVID straight out or is it, um, you know, COVID combined with other underlying preventable health issues that could be fixed by not being locked up in your house, smashing Macca's, Uber Eats three or four times a day and having, you know, the whole alcohol deliveries coming, you know, fast and heavy. So it's um, it's definitely a complicated, complex issue, I think. And the, um, the overarching thing is maybe general healthier, better habits are, are, are needed. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And I think that's that's kind of why people had enough, I think. You know, you're talking about health, you're beating your chest and, you know, you're doing nothing about health. <laughs> you're really not. Um, so kind of veering away from that subject so we can get on some of the other the areas, but it's kind of pertinent as well. The, um, you know, the the active shooter, as they call it, or active attacker or whatever the, the latest kind of buzzwords are, sadly are quite a frequent occurrence here in the US and people again will you know pick sides again and murder each other over you know gun laws but ultimately it's another mental health crisis that we have because a gun would just sit there if you're not a lunatic and you want to shoot someone um, That's right, yeah. so talk to me about the active armed offender team that, that you were a part of yeah so uh, back in 2016 um, I was taken over to our, <coughs> our curriculum development um, teams and as part of that, um, we developed the Active Armed Defender Project, which was a curriculum designed to um, educate and provide a response capability to our officers in an event of an Active Armed Defender. And this really stems from the, um, the 2015 Paris attacks in November, where it was a multifaceted, um, attacks throughout the Bataclan Theatre, Paris hubs and cafes and, and the uh, overall entertainment areas. So that really initiated that cause for change um, in capability for us and um, was very much the catalyst, as, as well as other events as well. But that was the real the big catalyst to the, um, to the, the implementation of that project. I had um, Jules and Gédion Naudet, who were the two French brothers that made the 9-11 film, but they also did a Netflix special on the Bataclan attacks. And it was absolutely heartbreaking, but such a powerful perspective. And I think one of the things that really struck with me, stuck with me, excuse me, apart from you know the police and the firefighters and the medics that were all talking as well, was in the Bataclan itself, I think there were only... See the three or five shooters, and there were hundreds of people in there. And one French woman, what really, like, was the final straw for her was when they realized that at any one time, if they had just rushed the gunman, they could have, you know, prevented a lot of the slaughter that happened. But it was that, you know, fear of the masses. And again, it kind of, you know, parallels now in a very different acute event. But, you know, 
this, this this fear can just paralyze people when you take a step back and you look at the numbers versus those particular terrorists it would have taken kind of one one united front and they would have overwhelmed them you know in a heartbeat but instead they they hid and they were slaughtered in there yeah and that's i guess one of the absolute um major issues with these events is that when you have a large group of people like that group think is a, um, a massive issue and it, all it takes is maybe one or two people to step up and then you start getting that herd mentality and you you have an uprising and you have that push forward and when you look at the um the 9-11 attacks and the uh the plane that they um ended up re-commandeering off the terrorists was because of one or two people initiating group think and actually taking power back um, and when you look at those events, and especially Paris, um, it, it's just a, a terrible, terrible incident where that initial shockwave that's put through just gets everyone on their back foot and then that's so contagious. Well, one program that came kind of permeated into law enforcement and fire during my career was called the, the SAFE program. And it was basically kind of pivoted around an initial group of law enforcement would go in to the hot area, you know, and initiate that. A second group would go into technically what was the warm zone. And we as medics would kind of latch onto them. We wouldn't be armed. We just had body armor and a helmet, um, a helmet, a generic helmet that may or may not fit you. Um, yeah. And uh, the goal was obviously very, very rapid um, trauma medicine and then rapid extrication. So what, what was – what was present prior to this team and then what changes did you make after you kind of uh, initiated that second wave? Yeah, so for us, the Active Arm Defender Project was the initial team. Um, and basically what we taught with that um, was realistically now as an Australian standard, you've got a small team or small teams that function with um, pretty much elementary tactics when you look at it to move forward and to stop the offender doing what they're doing. Um, and how they do that is by utilising our current use of force methodologies. From there, what we had was a great endpoint. Um, but one of the big things that I started to look at was, well, that's great, but stopping the offender is what our main charter as police is. But you've still got – it's not the end of the job, okay? You, you've got a massive amount of work to do. And if anything, at that point in time, the bulk of the work hasn't even started, especially for police who need to follow through and complete a full, thorough investigation about this. And in Queensland, there's one police service. We don't really function too much in with our federal components and unless it's needed and – for us to work in an environment like that, we're running it, we're doing that job. So I've become really, really heavily focused on, well, what the, what's the purpose of an active armed defender? And it's to kill and maim as many people as possible. So for us, what's the best way to stop them doing that? And that's to stop the killing. So if we can stop the killing and stop people dying, we're going against and, and, and reversing that mission that that person has actually set themselves by doing what they're doing as an active armed defender. So 
I really pushed hard and got it, finally got traction and initiated the tactical first aid uh, project. And what that was looking at was how to render immediate life-saving aid to people um, mainly with penetrating traumas at stabbings or, or firearms offences and to get them packaged up to expand their life expectancy enough so advanced medical providers can do what they do the best because we can't do it. We don't know what we're doing. It's as simple as that. We just want to stop the bleeding, keep the red stuff on the inside, keep air going in and out and, um, and pass them off as quick as possible. Now, when I think of shooting in, in, in that area, another one that was absolutely heartbreaking, um, was it Christchurch in New Zealand? And it was a mosque, have I got that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that, but that was an Australian national, wasn't it, that was over there doing that? Yeah, that's right. So from my understanding of it, he was an, uh, an Australian uh, who was living in New Zealand as a permanent resident and had basically set him... <laughs> I think there's sort of maybe even a little bit of um, the Anders Brebeck type of um, mentality there where they've gone off and written, you know, almost a memoir of what they're doing, why they're doing it, and gone and committed these sort of absolutely heinous acts. Yeah. Were there, were there any kind of lessons learned or thing that came out of that? Because, I mean, I, I, like I said, was in Australia. I was in New Zealand for a while. When yeah. I think of New Zealand, I don't think of weapons. You know, I don't think of even violence. Really, and of course, there are, you know, there's violence in that that place as well. But it's a very, I found it a very friendly, warm nation as a whole. And then we have this tragedy where you know it's absolute, you know, massacre. Were there any lessons learned or any um, kind of insights into why that occurred? I think the um, the big thing with New Zealand there is. Like Australia, um, we don't have a really a gun culture in Australia, and I think New Zealand sort of echoes that quite well. Australia and New Zealand, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I kind of get the sense that the differences between America and Canada are like America's got that gun culture where Canada's got not really a gun culture but more of a hunting recreation culture. And in Australia, we don't really what we have is more of an agricultural um, culture around firearms where we use firearms for the purposes of hunting, protecting livestock, euthanizing livestock and, and, and associated sort of um, requirements of that. So the firearms that you see in Australia are very much directed towards those type of purposes. And I think New Zealand are very, very similar. Um, New Zealand have got a little bit more laxed uh, laws in the sense of the ability to possess um, like AR-15 platforms and semi-automatic rifles for the uses of hunting. Uh, in Australia, you can't own a suppressor or a silencer, whatever you want to call it, for um, any reason besides uh, like that real top-end agricultural purpose, whereas in New Zealand, they're legal for the purposes of hunting. So. The um, the big thing that's really starting to change for New Zealand now is it's sort of get I get the sense that it's really pushing over to the Australian sort of side of things. They've had one massive attack and now it's all all cards are off the table. So 
with Australia, we had the, um, you know, uh, in Tasmania, the Port Arthur massacre, uh, where that greatly changed the uh, Australian uh, firearms laws. So we went from basically having semi-automatic weapons to overnight, they're now banned. Government did a huge buyback and they're all gone. So we lost semi-automatic weapons, um, high-capacity magazines, things like that. They're all gone. Um, New Zealand are very much looking at, and I haven't kept up to date on it too much, but that was basically the first conversations that happened within days of the event was the banning of those type of weapons. Now, have you seen an impact of the banning of weapons by legal gun owners? Owners. Um, that effect on guns being used by the criminal element? Um, I think the big thing in, in Australia, and especially in Queensland where I am, I've definitely seen and, and had uh, dealings with a lot of firearms. Uh, they're all illegal. If you had a licence, they wouldn't be illegal, but when you obviously you know, get them illegally, well, yeah, they're now illegal. So. Um, people break into people's houses who are licensed gun owners and steal their firearms. It happens really quite regularly uh, at a surprising rate. So if you want one, you're going to get one. Um, and in a lot of times I kind of feel like the, um, the suppression of firearm availability, all it really does is keep honest people out of owning these things because the people who want them are still going to get them somehow. And if they don't, they just switch over. And I think that's why you see such high prevalence of knife violence in European countries with also heavy gun uh, regulation. As in Australia, like we don't see a huge amount of gun violence, but the, the knife violence in, in Queensland at the moment is definitely on the rise. If people can't do it with something, they'll cause harm with something else. It doesn't matter. As long as we've got thumbs, we're going to be hurting people. Yeah, no, and it's such an interesting thing. And again, I think the middle road is is you know, the common sense. Like you can guy go into a gun store in America and buy a fifty cal, you know, a, a sniper rifle that will explode a human being from a mile away. You can't really argue that is for hunting or home defense. I mean, you know, <laughs> neither. You wouldn't have any meat left, or you'd blow the person and then you'd murder the twelve neighbors down the street as well. Um, yeah, that's right. But at the same time. Coming from England, with very stringent gun laws, when I came here in the middle of this gun culture, you're absolutely right. And I ended up getting myself a weapon because right now, you know, you would literally be bringing a knife to a gunfight and you would you know, lose every yeah. time. So, but uh, when you also think about the violent crime, there's, there's an element that always rang true with me. Any pussy can pull a trigger. They can drive by and murder someone. When you got to murder yeah. someone with your bare hands, a hammer, a knife, a hatchet, whatever, that does take another level of anger, violence, aggression, mental ill health. So I think that taking away not guns in general, but reducing that gun culture would would definitely also take away some deaths and also suicide. The highest actual number of deaths caused by a firearm in the US is suicide, not, not murder. Yeah. So it's a lot harder to kill yourself with something other than a gun. You know what I mean? So 
you know, I think that there's there's an argument for both sides, and it's it's really important to hear different countries. I mean, Norway, I use them, you know, I hold them on a pedestal for so many different areas, but they had that horrendous attack on on the summer camp, and a whole bunch of uh, you know students were murdered. But I don't think that forced change. They looked at it more as this is a complete psychopath. We've locked him. They got a very progressive prison system. That shit bag is, is in a box. Like he's not in a progressive system. They don't even mention his name. Um, so, but they took it as an isolated incident rather than now tarring the entire country with the same brush. So again, the more perspectives we get, the more middle ground we can find. I don't think eight year olds should be able to play with a 50 cal sniper rifle in a department store. But at the same time, taking all the guns away sounds very much like government overreach as well. Yeah, and I think it's a matter of finding um, middle ground. And, and uh, you know, for me, I'm a, I compete several times a month in, in competition pistol shooting um, and we're now branching out to other forms of competition as well with that. And for me to go through things and, and to buy things legally and to do it right, one, the stuff is so expensive because of all the government tariffs that come in on it and, you know, there is absolutely no way I would ever do anything to jeopardise my licences because they are so expensive and it's so hard to get and come by and the wait times are ridiculous. So, um, you know, I definitely find that there's elements of People like me in that same culture as, as myself who do this as a sport and as something, you know, pleasurable, it's like anything else. Like you wouldn't go out and buy a brand new car and just trash it because, well, that's what you do. You look after things and you, you really promote benefits in the health uh, or, and promote the health of that culture. So, yeah, the government oversight is, is hard to deal with in some aspects of it. Um, and I, I do kind of feel that in the, there's aspects where to protect the greater elements of it, they sort of punish everyone and not the people that are per, like perpetrating these violent acts. It's like, well, you know what? We didn't do anything to it, but we're all now being further suppressed by doing what we want to do and actually enjoy doing for the greater good of it. So, Yeah, well, and I would love for the police officers protecting my family to train a lot with their weapons you know what i mean so if a police officer in australia is going through all these struggles purely to get better at the the tool of the trade then i think that you know that's a red flag right there yeah it's a um it, it's a harsh reality and i uh, yeah well, i initially um started into you know recreational firearms as a matter to supplement my own training which then like everything got out of hand for me and i ended up getting right into it so it's sort of it, it's a hard task when i can go to work pick up in retrospect a highly illegal firearm um with a high capacity magazine but as soon as i step out the door i'm no longer trusted yeah very interesting well you mentioned in the active arm defender team um the kind of tactical medicine element so talk to me i mean you you had your first aid training you know hoping that the fire service would pick you up um, and your dream is never fulfilled, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, but but obviously you ended up carrying that medical element into that training instead. So talk to me about tactical first aid. So 
yeah, going well, well, going back to the um, my absolutely shattered dreams of never becoming a firefighter. <laughs> I, I host things regularly. I, I, I do take it out though. Um, going through and doing my you know basic first aid courses, advanced CPR, and things like that. I used to actually really enjoy doing those courses. So um, I guess there was always that seed planted in the back of my head there that you know this is something that I do really like and I like the uh, the elements of like the the biology of it, how it works, how it functions, how the human body operates as well as that. So I've always had an interest in it. Um, my first real exposures come about several years later when I was a police officer and I went to a traumatic event where um, a person had committed a really um, a very brutal murder and then uh, committed suicide by stabbing himself through the throat. So as a first responder to that, I was sort of left with that incident. Um, at that point in time, I had a person who I knew nothing about with two large lacerations to their inside of their neck. Um, and dealing with that and being confronted with that, I have categorically never felt more useless in my life where you're dealing with this person who you don't know anything about them, you don't know what they've done, um, but you're looking at them like, you know, this is actually someone, someone's son, an individual who I've got a duty of care about now, and I do not have any conceivable idea of what to do here. So that was really a catalyst to start reaching out to, to friends of mine who are paramedics and, and talking about his injury profiles and his, and his wounds and going, well, what would you do? Because this is what I did and I've got nothing. And um, the overarching thing was, well, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing anyone could have done with that. That was an instant exanguation. He was going to die. He bled out probably before you were even there. He wasn't breathing when you got there. He was agonal breathing. It's sort of like the body's sort of reptile responses just going through the death rattles and, you know, you've mistaken that for your failing. So that took quite a while to get over um, in the sense of digesting and processing the incident from, you know, the traumatic presentation of, of a body. Um to the fact of, oh, okay, so that's what it actually is. It's like it's not me failing. It's the fact nothing could have been done for that person regardless. So how do we get through this and, and what do we do? So I started educating myself and I started really looking at and uh, reading a lot about trauma, basic initial sort of trauma response, first aid, what we can do to stop major bleeds, the differences between, you know, uh, an extremity bleed on a limb as compared to an arterial bleed in a, in a junctional or adjunct area or the top of the neck. How do we fix that? So from there, I, I kind of progressed out and I started to build my own education, started to build my own kit. I, I was buying like my own tourniquets. I had my own wound packing material. And I kept things on me like that. So I progressed on to that. And then maybe a couple of years later, I went to a really bad um, sort of botched armed robbery where a guy was 
stabbed, I think it was about 40 or 50 times. And it went from his face to the soles of his feet. He was absolutely just riddled with puncher marks. And it was the first time I really saw and identified a, a proper sucking chest wound. And I had didn't have the equipment for it, but I knew what to do and the basics of keeping that person propped up by, you know, positioning him, um, you know, with a bad lung down and doing things like that to promote his health while, you know, ambulance sort of got on scene. So I considered that to, to be one of the, my big, I guess, emotional wins in the, in the fact of, you know, I feel pretty good about this because I've gone from losing people to identifying things and making a difference to get it up there. So what was if I knew more and could do more? Um, and from that point, the Active Arm Defender project come along, tactical first aid come up, and um, I really started to then really push into um, advocating for victims in that role and making or trying to make police more responsible and more apt to, to resolving those incidences. Now, we talked before we started recording about kind of the mental health element and obviously, you know, especially that first call, even though, you know, it's it's a murder-suicide and, you know, you tend to have a little bit less compassion to someone that's just brutalized and, and taken another human being. However, the inability to save, I think, is something that a lot of us struggle with, you know, because when, for example, and I've used this example a lot on here, you know, the, the CPR and the defibrillation, you know, we're taught do this, 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 and that's how you save someone. And in reality, you go out there and it's like, no, you can't save someone whose head's mangled in the car or, you know, as you said, has been stabbed, you know, hundreds of times. Um, so, but you had an interesting kind of holistic element, especially even with education. So talk to me firstly about the impact mentally for you. And then how did you find books or, or studying factored into a positive coping mechanism for you? Yeah, so the, the first element of that is um, the mental health ramifications for me, were all, that, they were pretty hard. Um, and I, I don't know if suffered's the right term from it, but it was one of those things that, you know, you, I started, you know, questioning my own abilities. I started becoming quite um, almost standoffish as, well, I don't want to turn up and not be able to do anything. So what do I do here? Like, how do you feel? And, and with that becomes, you know, the elements of anxiety that come in, like you, you question yourself, you question your job, you then start, you know, really second-guessing everything. And that's it's a really, really harsh thing to do, especially where, you're in an industry where split-second decisions are so, so important and also occur like hundreds of times on a daily basis almost. So my mental health suffered as, as a result of that and going through trying to get myself up out of that ditch, I, I did that by, like I said, by talking to my mates who were paramedics and, um, other sort of health professionals and, you know, pumping doctors for information when I was at the hospital and asking about, the, you know, did I do the right thing or what should I have done or whatever else. And what I felt from it was when they're like, no, no, you did the right thing. And I got that little kick out of it. I'm like, oh, that felt good, you know. Well, why? It's like, well, 
the reason why you you to do that was because you went and looked it up and you, you armed yourself with that information, that knowledge. So when you did the job the next time, you were already on the front foot. So for me, that was one of those things of, yeah, okay, cool. Well, that's, that's something that I can do and I can do it so easily and I can do it in my downtime. I can do it when I'm driving around and I'm, you know, bored on shift type of thing. So for me, education become one of those things that, well, if you want to feel better about things and you, you don't want to fail in life, well, go and educate yourself. And I found it really counterintuitive based on the fact that I hated school so much. And um, I've then switched back over to, um, you know, studying on my own time by my own means, by, you know, buying anatomy books or buying first aid books, subscribing to certain things on the internet and, and stuff like that. So, you know, that was one of the biggest things for me was to have positive effects on your own mental health, just be prepared. And by planning and preparing your own skill sets and, and bringing your own knowledge base up, well, you turn up to the jobs and you look at something you're like, Everyone's screaming about this person bleeding, but you turn up and you're like, that's really not bleeding that much. And that's actually really a distraction for this big injury that he's got over here. Let's focus on that. So it's been one of those things that, no, no, I wouldn't call it a journey because it sort of gives you that idea of you've got a direction because it just sort of float around the topics. But um, having that autonomy to, to delve into and research what I want when I want um, has been massive for my overall level of sort of confidence and well-being and, and just general, you know, I, I guess health and well-being because it translates so much into other areas. But I don't know something, instead of worrying about it or getting anxious about it, I'll just go and look it up, read about it, look up scientific journals and, and get the actual lowdown and, you know, read for it against, make my own opinions on it. Well, and I've observed that within myself as well. I think first you hit autonomy. So, you know, you're empowering yourself to to do actionable things that will improve the outcome next time. And I think that with that inability to serve, the the counter to that is, well, we did everything we were trained to do and we did it at the level that should be done so therefore no we couldn't bring that person back however and a perfect example for me is a 28 year old had a brain bleed i mean that code we ran on that gentleman went flawlessly and a 28 year old man died so there's nothing but tragedy but the guilt and shame element wasn't there because we gave him every single chance we could but anatomically he wasn't going to come back from that had we not trained had we not been prepared that might be a whole different thing. Yeah, and I think this is one of the big things that um, I've come to learn as well is um, in, in the in, uh, maybe it's a police culture or it's maybe an Australian culture, I, I don't know, but we tend to find that <laughs> where I am and, and how I am is if the police don't give it to you, then you don't need it. And I really sort of resent that idea and that sort of um, that attitude based on the fact that our service don't supply torches, but you need a torch. So what do you do? You go and buy one. 
And it's like, well, if the police don't supply you with enough information on, um, in this case, trauma, well, go and get it. Just because it's not supplied by the police, it doesn't mean you don't need it, shouldn't have it. It may take some effort to go and do it. And, yeah, there's definitely arguments of, well, they didn't give it to me so I shouldn't have it. But, you know, for, for me and my overall health, well-being and my mental health especially, it's like I'm going to have that a lot longer than I'm going to be in the police. I've got to retire at 60 because that's our age limits. So hopefully I'm around longer than that. And I'd like to have my head screwed on still at the end of it. So if we're going to do a bit of research now or spend a bit of money, it's a long-term investment in your own health and your own well-being. And if education is going to be the difference between feeling good about what you've done, great. Go and do it. So I'm a little confused. So your agency just expects when it gets dark, you guys don't respond to emergency calls anymore? <laughs> they literally yeah, don't think- give you a torch? In some cases, we've, we've got torches there from sort of the station budgets, but yeah, there's certain equipment elements that we, we don't get and we would definitely like them. Yeah. So, yeah, there is a little bit of onus put back on us to, to sort of have things, but then there's the other elements where we're pretty lucky that we get everything else. Yeah. No, it's just that's surprising. I mean, I, there's 511, one of the sponsors of the show, have an amazing torch that uh, I have now. And that damn thing is so bright. Because, you know, again, you talk about countries you can't carry. Well, a, an extremely bright light is a great self-defense tool, you know, as well as obviously, you know, using it to, to look around. Um, but, yeah. So, I mean, buying your own is definitely not a bad thing. But there are certain basal tools that you would expect to be in the initial outfit when you get hired in law enforcement or fire. You would. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then I just want to quickly go to, to the last element and then go to some closing questions. But you mentioned about working in dignitary protection now. So what what was that journey from regular law enfor- enforcement to that? And again, what's unique about this role that you're in now? Yeah, so um, within Queensland, we've got a small dignitary protection unit that's it's not small. It's definitely ample, but... Um, because Queensland is such a massive state um, and, and so diverse as well that we need to have regional assets throughout or regionally trained assets th- throughout the state. So um, probably in about 2012 uh, or was probably 2013, uh, I did the dignitary protection course uh, and become a regional asset for that. And then since doing the tactical first aid package and project, I've worked with those teams to help um, look at their own medical capabilities and, and work out how they can implement the larger system into their um, and, and quantify it into a, a smaller package. So if you look at it from the total package of you've got um, tools and equipment, um, you know, like tourniquets, modular bandages, wound packing materials, chest seals, um, trauma shears, they're all available to us. And, and that fits really well into our standard, um, you know, uniform, which is like cargo pants, like a load-bearing vest with all our kit strapped to our chest. So that fits really nicely in. But when you take that to a dignitary protection element, that really ruins the line of your nice suit. So you've 
how do you go about taking those tools and tailoring it to the specific needs of, um, you know, a dignitary protection, um, close quarter protection or close personal protection um, capability? So working with those teams and, and also looking at who do we protect, who do we operate with, uh, and, and we go from there. So in a, in a lot of cases we provide protection to government assets who don't really have huge levels of threat on them. People don't really want to hurt, you know, the Queen's representative. But when you look at their person and their physiology, you start looking at people who are, no offence to them, it's just what it is. They start coming to that geriatric realm. Um, You know, one of the people that I've worked directly on was Prince Charles. And you're looking at having, um, you know, his person, his, you know, he's of his age, he's from London, and when he comes to our country, which is extremely hot, um, you know, he's on a very long, heavy um, program, he's fatigued. It's like, well, are we looking at being able to put tourniquets on him or are we also looking at things like we're looking at heat stress, stroke indicators, heart attack issues as well like that based on the fact of his age demographic puts him into the realm of those risk factors. So do we need to broaden our scope of practice, have a bit more knowledge, a bit more education, and as a means to protect their dignity, do we need to give them a tap on the shoulder early and go, hey, we need to get you out of here now based on these things uh, instead of running down that standard aspect of, you know, we're not Kevin Costner in the bodyguard. We're not jumping in front of bullets all the time. There's a lot more to the role than those stereotypical means. So uh, working within that unit's been um, in those elements really quite uh, fulfilling as to, hey, let's broaden our scope of practice a little bit. Let's broaden our thought and, and look at who we're protecting, be a little bit more specific to what their actual needs are and the tailor for them as well. Brilliant. Well, then one one kind of like tangent before we we close up with the tension politically. Have have there been any elevated risks as far as protecting members of parliament, for example, or you know government, um, because of some of the the decisions that have been made these last couple of years? Yeah, when I was working in the office um, a couple of years ago, there was there was some government legislation that was brought in that was. Um, quite specific to certain criminal groups and they obviously took disliking to that. So threat levels went up a little bit um, and we've become a little bit more switched on with what was happening in those areas. Um, I've never personally been um, in a a position where I've had to, um, you know, swiftly or decisively act to, to protect a, a, one of our principles. Um, and it, it's one of those things that I think we're so, so lucky in Queensland because everyone is so laid back. I think if we were working in our southern states like New South Wales or Victoria where, um, you know, the population's down there a little bit more intense, I, I think we'd probably have a lot more work on. But in Queensland, everyone's about, you know, get your surfing lesson on Christmas Eve and just chilling out. So we're pretty lucky. <laughs> Not get eaten by a shark. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> 
All right. So switching to some closing questions then. The first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Well, the current book that I'm reading at the moment is by a good mate of mine, uh, Dan Pronk, which is a resilient shield. Um, so he's, it's uh, Ben Pronk, which is Dan Pronk's brother, and Tim Curtis. The three of those have authored a book on building a, a good resilient shield through, you know, multifacets of, um, you know, standardising sort of life practices and, and things like that. So that's the book that I'm reading at the moment. And I've got to say it's absolute cracker, um, not as a direct hit up for those boys, but just smart people creating a book in plain English that you can read and understand is, is excellent. So um, that's been a really good one. The other one that I read not too long ago was the, um, the Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. I thought that was actually quite good as well. Just um, for someone in, in, in high-stress positions to have a different sort of take on things and, and look at what really matters and, and how it matters and when it matters it's, and, and just not really taking it too much on board. Is, that was a good book to read. Yeah, I listened to that one and Dan's actually been on the show before. He was supposed to be coming back. I think we was supposed to do an interview this week, actually, but he had to reschedule. So it'll probably be in April now, but we're going to, we're circling around again to talk about the book. And he's partially involved in a pretty epic project that I'm involved with with some Navy SEALs over here, too. So, um, yeah, it's going to be a great conversation, part two. That one was completely unscheduled, too, that. <laughs> <laughs> No, was, like I said, he's amazing. Australian SAS as well. So, and, and humble, yeah. humble as they, come, as they come. So, all right. Well, the same question. What about a movie and or documentary? Um, actually, a documentary that I watched that long, long ago. I can't remember when it was made, but it's called Sufferfest. And it's, um, it's uh, a documentary that is about obstacle racing within the current era. So, doing like the Tough Mothers Spartan races and things like that and how people are willingly going forth and paying a large amount of money to put themselves through the absolute ringer um, and the, the psychological benefits of taking yourself out of that real cotton-wrapped office environment, taking yourself out into like the forest for the weekend and smashing yourself or you know, five, six hours and intentionally hurting yourself just to somehow feel alive and a bit primal again. So that, that's a really good um, documentary that sort of really delves into the psychology of why people need to do things that, that hurt to make you feel alive again. Absolutely. No, I've, I've done Tough Mudders and Spartan Races. I actually had the founder of Spartan on the show as well. Um, but, uh, I witnessed that like there's especially the, the Spartan more so than any of them for some reason. I think the first wave is competitive and after that it's people just getting through the course. So what you saw more often than not is you had, you know, I was normally with a, with a fit bunch of lads when we ran 
And you'd see this groups of people that are very able that would go through and they just hang out an obstacle, help some people through, and then they carry on again. And at the end, you just have this community, you know, and, and that shared suffering, I think, is so important. And, and those races do a really, really good job of taking us out of our comfort zone, which we all need, but then also showing us that you can forge community if you suffer together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been a massive advocate of Spartan races now. Um, I actually just got back two, three days ago now from doing one down in um, southern Australia. So um, I'm up to probably my 30th race about now. Um, and I've always been blown away by the fact that you turn up, regardless of what the weather conditions are, it can be freezing cold or whatever else, and you're plunging into a, you know, waist-deep river that's, freezing cold, but the person that you have no idea beside you is then laughing along with them and, you know, having a random chat with them for the next, you know, 25 Ks while you're, you're slogging away. So, yeah, it's um, something that I really, really appreciate and I always make a goal to, to finish all three races in the year. Brilliant. Plus, it's an awesome travel with Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's one thing I want to do. I've done a lot of races here in Florida, but Florida's quite flat, so I want to get to some of our states a little bit more mountainous and do some there. Yeah, yeah. I just did the mountainous one on the weekend, and yeah, it's it's cool in theory, but then when you're there, you hate yourself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the next question is: There a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Um. <laughs> I was probably going to go with Dan Dan Prong to start with, but you've already got that organised. Um, probably someone that I find would be awesome for it um, would be the Matt Pepper, who is um, he was the uh, founder and the first president for the Australian Tactical Medicine Association, um, and he is legitimately just an amazing person of you know wealth of knowledge but also just completely human and genuine um he was the first paramedic or he was the paramedic involved in the link cafe siege as well in new south wales and really forged tactical medicine within australia so you know i feel that it's uh massively humbling not only to know matt but call him a mate and um to have him on the show and his perspective on tactical medicine within the Australian realm and also international, um, I think that would be awesome to get him on. He's a wealth of knowledge. Beautiful. This is why I love these questions. I didn't have these questions at the very beginning when I started the show and I put them in and I'm like, this is genius. Like, you know, hey, awesome person. Do you know another awesome person? <laughs> so, yeah. So. He's also got amazing hair as well. It's just flowing golden locks, so you've definitely got to get him there. Well, now I'm hooked, <laughs> so let's make it happen. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. All right, well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you online, what do you do to decompress these days? Well, look, the big thing for me is um, I've always got back to, to nature. That's always been my one absolute massive calling. I always try and get out, uh, get out up into the mountains as much as possible. Um, always been a massive advocate of following my dad's footsteps in this realm. I've always done uh, wildlife and nature photography as well. So that's always been a massive thing for myself. 
Um, but when I can't do that, it's just a matter of just chilling out, going for a walk, go to the gym, go for a run, and, and just do those basic things just to, to keep moving. Probably because I've also got undiagnosed ADHD or something, I don't know, but it's all there. Yeah, it's just the, the same common denominators over and over again. It's, you know, family, nature, um, you know, exercise, you know, I mean, meditation, mindfulness. I mean, all these, all these things come over and over and over again. So again, the beautiful thing of, you know, 500 and God knows how many episodes now is we see these common denominators really start to rear up. And I think that's the problem, you know, that we see in, in some of these densely populated cities that don't get to see nature very much. That's often where we see the most violence, the most tension, the most division, because we put them in these kind of concrete boxes and taken them away from the very healing element that is nature. Yeah, and it's actually really funny that you mentioned that now because I, I feel, you know, in hindsight and just having that quick think about what you just said, it's, yeah, the reason nature is just so important, I think, to that first responder element is it's just the absolute contrast to what we deal with. So when you go and have a total flip side to it, it's, that's where you just hit that absolute, you know, you really zero yourself out. Completely. Absolutely. All right. Well, then I'm sure people listening, you know, would love to follow you, learn more about you. So where are the best places online to to, to do that or reach out to you? I am on uh, LinkedIn. You can always jump on there. That's that's my professional one. That's where I sort of um, keep my professional element going. Um, but then also I'm on Instagram as well as Dustin Osborne underscore AU. Beautiful. Well, Dustin, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, again, the more of these conversations that we get from all these different, you know, professions and, and different men and women from all over the globe, it really does help paint again that middle road picture. And we really get to knowledge share and learn from each other. And when we have the humility to do that, you know, for example, some of the stuff you talked about with the tactical medicine, you get this cross pollination, which I think is beautiful. And it shows that wherever on the planet we are, the mental health element is the same. You know, some of the pros and cons of the last two years are the same. And we get that nice, steady, middle of the road perspective instead of these blooming extremes that we just keep hearing over and over again. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Yeah, absolutely, James. Thanks very much, man. I greatly appreciate the, um, the opportunity and the chance to be on and speak with yourself.